Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and in the news this week, research by top statisticians at, uh, I'm going to say, Oxford, has found that 99.9% of people do not listen to the last few minutes of a podcast, which is a shame in the case of Soho Bites, because that's the best bit. I normally sing a song then, share a bit of top showbiz gossip, that sort of thing. And normally I also use that last minute of the show to urge you to go and visit the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast, by the way, and to beg you, beg you, to leave a positive review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. If you could do some or all of these, I would be most grateful. Well, it had to happen eventually. I'm only surprised it took 17 episodes to get here. This is the Smut episode. Why have people come to Soho over the years? For the restaurants, pubs and bars, for sure. To work in the media and film industries, yes. And to buy their fruit and veg on Berwick Street back in the day. Yes, again, all of these. But let's face it, for a large part of the 20th century, people came to Soho for the Smut. For a glimpse of a few bums and boobs over the rim of a plastic glass of warm beer, or to part the beaded curtains of one of the many mucky mag shops that used to be nearly every second window, there to purchase a special interest publication before slipping it inside a copy of Homes and Gardens and heading back on the 538 to Basingstoke. So to kick off the show, I'll be talking to an acknowledged expert on the subject of this depraved filth, David McGillivray. He joins me to talk about one of the pioneers of commercial nudie photography, George Harrison Marks. And for our film chat in the second half of the show, I'll be wandering down the dark and dingy Soho alleyway that features as a location in the 1959 shocker Covergirl Killer, starring a pre-steptoe Harry H. Corbett. Dark and dingy alleyways aren't normally the sort of places you'd expect to find esteemed theatre directors such as Luke Dixon, but that's who I found down there, and Covergirl Killer is the film we discussed. To be honest, it's not that dark and dingy anymore, St Anne's Court. It's actually quite nice. On with the show. Nowadays, virtually anybody anywhere in the world can access as much pornography as they could possibly wish for with a few taps of the screen or a click of the mouse. 
It goes without saying, though, that this wasn't always the case. Back in the 1950s, if you wanted to see pictures of flesh, you would need to know where to buy them, and they often came in the form of sets of half a dozen black and white photographs sold from under the counter in a plain envelope. As time went on, this material became available in the form of magazines, and later still, if you had the budget to fork out on a projector, you could watch some of the same models from the photo sets and magazines actually moving as they removed their clothes for your entertainment in short, silent 8mm films. And the chances are, the stuff you were viewing if you did this was produced by George Harrison Marks. Known professionally as Harrison Marks and George to his friends, he was born in 1926 and died in the same house in North London 71 years later. He worked as a comedian in the dying days of variety before taking up photography, and it was whilst photographing West End showgirls that he met the woman who would become his lover, business partner, muse and model, Pamela Green. Together they began producing glamour photographs, they possibly coined that term, for under-the-counter sale and for magazines. They soon moved into the production of short striptease films and nudist features, mostly starring Pamela, and in 1957 launched a hugely successful camera magazine, Camera with a K, from their studio and office in Gerrard Street. After their personal lives diverged in 1961, Marks continued in the industry he'd helped to create for the rest of his life, eventually moving into illegal hardcore pornography. I was hoping to get legendary French film director Francois Truffaut on the programme to talk about Harrison Marks, but unfortunately he died in 1984, so I've had to settle for the next best thing, the Truffaut of smut, David McGillivray. It was Matthew Sweet who once gave him that title, and it seems to have stuck. David is a critic, actor, filmmaker, and the author of the seminal work on the history of the British sex film, Doing Rude Things. Having lived for decades in central London, David has recently moved out to genteel and leafy West London, Ealing to be precise, which is where I met him to talk about Harrison Marks. If you hear a hiss on the recording, it's actually a gentle breeze in the trees as we were in his back garden, and that's why you may also hear the occasional child playing next door. I began by asking David if there was any merit to Harrison Marks' work. Was he just a filthy smut peddler? I'm not sure whether Harrison Marks would uh, want to have been called a, a, a smut peddler. I think that's certainly how we look at him today. Uh, I first discovered him when I was very, very young. I'm talking about eight or nine, and his magazines were hidden in the bottom of my father's cupboard. <laughs> and I was fascinated. They featured his muse, Pamela Green. So this experience for me was rather like uh, somebody of today's generation um, checking their father's browsing history. Anyway, what I'm saying is that, you know, smut has always been there. It's nothing new. And Harrison Marks was a pioneer. He was one of the first people to produce so-called glamour films, and these were very short 8mm films that were either sold by mail order or under the counter at the newsagents. Did he create this market, or was he exploiting a market that already existed? He didn't invent glamour films. That was another smut 
peddler called Stanley Long, but Harrison Marks realised very quickly that there was big money to be made out of these little 8mm films. Um, previously, he'd been a music hall comic, and you can see that influence in all his films, both the little glamour films and his later feature films. Tell me about this music hall career, because he must have been quite young doing that if he was... Because he was fairly young when he got into the um, the nude photography, wasn't he? Harrison Marks started out very, very young. He was a teenager when he teamed up with a friend, Stuart Samuels, to form a double act. And this went round the music halls when variety was dying. It was uh, after the war. Uh, he packed it all in in 1949 and decided to try photography. There's always a lot of argument about how good Harrison Marks was as a photographer. I'm not sure myself. I've seen some of his very early work. Remarkably, he, he photographed Bela Lugosi's tour of Dracula in the UK. And I don't know whether it was reproduction or what, but the photos aren't very good. Okay. <laughs> and subsequently, of course, more than one person has said that he had very little talent whatever, and it was his muse, Pamela Green, who showed him how to take photos. In your book, Doing Rude Things, available at all good booksellers, including foils in Soho, you said that Pamela Green, I've forgotten the exact wording, but something like Pamela Green exerted a certain influence over him. And I get the impression from other things I've read that she basically ran the shop and he was a bit pathetic. Is that, would that be fair to say? We get the impression now, not just because of my book, Doing Rude Things, in which I repeated this, but other people um, as early as the 1970s, it seems as though Pamela Green knew what to do, especially with regard to lighting. She'd studied art, um, she'd met other photographers because she became a nude model in order to pay her way through college. It seems that Harrison Marks knew nothing, almost nothing about this at all. And probably Pamela Green was a major influence on Harrison Marks. Subsequently, he did actually say, I would never have made it without Pamela. After he met Pamela Green, I think his photography improved. It's, it's impossible to know for sure. It's impossible to know who did what, but... It seems to me that he didn't know what he was doing early on, and why should he? You know, he was a music hall comic. He knew nothing about photography. And he kept kind of returning to this comedy thing, didn't he? Sort of, I mean, I say comedy. It's not very funny. I mean, the, the one film that I'm thinking of, which is quite late in his career, is this one, I've forgotten his name now, with poor old Alfie Bass is being dragged into it. Uh, you're talking about Harrison Marks' last feature film, Come Play With Come Me. Come Play With Me, that's right, yeah. Which is generally regarded to be one of the worst uh, British sex films ever made. Uh, when I met him, Harrison Marks says, I know what I'm doing. I know that a mix of sex and comedy works. I have to say that because he was the longest-running British pornographer 
40 years, you know, he began in the 50s and was still going um, before he died in 1997. Because of that, um, it's probable that uh, he was right. The public did like what he did. But the films are, as I've said so many times, neither <laughs> funny nor sexy. His idea of comedy was very, very old-fashioned indeed. He shoehorned it into all his films. He was forever dressing up in wigs and false teeth, and virtually everything he did on the screen as a performer in his films was toe-curlingly awful. <laughs> Harrison Marx was no businessman. Um, he, he screwed things up royally, but he did make a, a, a lot of money down the years. You know, he pissed it all up against the wall, but he was one of the first uh, to produce glamour films, and these were very, very popular when it was almost impossible to find material of that nature. Talking of nature, his first feature film, not the first nudie, as he always claimed it to be, but Naked as Nature Intended, in colour, with Pamela Green, was a huge success, not only in the UK, but all over the world. Presumably, he made quite a bit of money out of that as well. This is this one, it's like a travelogue, and nobody gets a close off until the last five minutes or something. <laughs> what sort of person was he? Because my impression is, he was an idiot. And I look at the pictures of him early on, he looks like a kind of... He's trying to present himself as some kind of Parisian beatnik or something, and this little chin beard, and he looks... And then, at the end of his life, he looks like a classic, dirty old man. I mean, that's quite a trajectory. How did you find him? Did you like him as a person, or was he objectionable? I never warmed uh, to Harrison Marx, I have to say. Uh, he was very bad-tempered, he was usually drunk when we met, and so he wasn't tremendously easy to deal with. He was also a downright liar. So what happened was that I produced the first edition of Doing Rude Things, when, in all honesty, I didn't know a great deal about the history of the British sex film, and I wrote down everything he told me because I thought it was the gospel truth. And then subsequently, you know, I learned from people who came after me and who did more research that he, he, he told lies all the time. And so I was able to correct these in the second edition of the book, um, which came out in 2017. You met him specifically because you were writing the book, not because he's in your social circle or anything. <laughs> Harrison Marks was not one of my social circle. <laughs> I only met him because, uh, well, it was about 1980. Uh, British sex films were still in production. Uh, and somebody said, why don't you write a series about the history of the films? And uh, I'd seen a lot of them by that time because I was working a, as a critic. And I thought, actually, that's quite a good idea. So this was when most of the filmmakers were still alive. I just phoned them up. It was possible in those days. You couldn't do it now. But I got interviews with all these people, Harrison Marks, Stanley Long, Derek Ford. Uh, they, most of them had never been interviewed before. 
In the case of the other filmmakers, I think they were quite excited to be interviewed. George Harrison Marks couldn't care less. Um, right. But he didn't seem to want publicity. It was a battle trying to get round to see him. He had other things to do, he said. Uh, what he was doing was making hardcore pornography at that time, and he was very busy. I didn't know that when I met him, though. Hardcore pornography was illegal, and so he was breaking the law. And indeed, he paid the price for it. You know, he was prosecuted for selling obscene uh, materials through the post. What is his legacy now? Does he have a legacy? I mean, obviously, he has a legacy in the form of the book that you wrote about him, and he's got some of his films are available at the BFI. Is he just an interesting character, an interesting footnote in history? I honestly believe that if I hadn't started writing about him and other people then wrote more about him, that he would now be virtually forgotten. The main problem with him is that he had no particular talent. And it's only because some of his films do surface now that people are able to see them. The trouble is that by general consensus the films are quite terrible so you know he, he doesn't really have any place in British film history apart from as an interesting footnote and the fact that he was so prolific you know only five feature films but hundreds of films all told and they date from the nudies of the 50s right up to the spanking films he was making just before he died. Not spanking as in terrific, you mean spanking as in, in involving spanking? Uh, when I say spanking, I mean, <laughs> just to clear this up, over the knee, pants pulled down and a cane across buttocks. He loved that sort of thing. And thanks to David for coming on the show. I listed some of his achievements before playing the interview, but I forgot to say that for a long time he's been one of Julian Clary's writers, and so, obviously, after we finished recording, I had to ask him if it was he who wrote the infamous Norman Lamont joke. As it turns out, David had nothing to do with that particular gag, as Julian was writing his own material that night, and he actually made quite a good fist of it. As well as his book, Doing Rude Things, David's autobiography, Little Did You Know, The Confessions of David McGillivray, came out last year and is available in all good bookshops. And a stage musical version of Trouser Bar, a short film he produced, is currently in pre-production. You can find details about all of this, plus his social media contacts on the show notes at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bikes takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. It's only three little words, but Cover Girl Killer is a title that promises a sleazy combination of sex and violence. 
It's difficult to say how a cinema audience in 1959 would have reacted to the film, but they possibly would have felt they'd been shortchanged. Even by standards of the day, Covergirl Killer is not particularly sexy or violent. It's actually a fairly humdrum police procedural, albeit with a fantastic central performance from Harry H. Corbett as the eponymous killer. And no, that's not a spoiler, because we know from virtually the first frame of the film that the man in the dirty mac, bad toupee and pebble glasses is the killer. The only unknowns are who he will kill next and whether or not he'll be caught. As to the first of these, we can soon predict who the next victim will be, as a pattern is soon discerned in the killings. The man, we never know his real name, and in the credits he is simply called The Man, appears to be murdering women who feature on the cover of a magazine called Wow. To be even more helpful to the police, he's bumping them off in the same order in which they appear in the magazine and arranging the bodies in the same poses they adopted on the covers. He appears to be driven by an urge to stamp out the filth and smut he sees all around him. He's both drawn to and disgusted by these women who will take their clothes off for money. See, I, I put on this costume you asked me to, and, well, there isn't really all that much of it. And with the t just the two of us here... I'm surprised at your embarrassment, Miss Adams. I can assure you, your nudity means nothing to me. You see, I I'm not really what you'd call a professional model. Aren't you being rather hypocritical? don't understand. You hesitate to take your clothes off in front of me, yet you're quite happy to exhibit your nakedness before the whole world on the front of this filthy magazine. <laughs> Leading the hunt for the bespectacled fiend is Detective Inspector Brunner, played by Victor Brooks. He's a pipe-smoking, coffee-drinking, experienced older copper who knows he's on the trail of a psychopath. But when the man, in one of his many disguises, comes to visit Brunner to give him a bum steer, our wily policeman doesn't realise he's been hoodwinked. About four months ago, I let one of my flats to a man of similar appearance to the man you're looking for. But what makes you so sure he is the man we're looking for? Yesterday, I called at the flats to collect the quarterly rents. I like to do that personally. It gives me an added interest, you understand? Yes, quite, quite. When I got to flat three, I found that the man had left, rather hurriedly by all appearances. The door was left open and the room was in a terrible mess. And some papers had been burnt in the grate. This was amongst them. It appears to be a portion of the cover of that uh, magazine. Uh, what's it called? Wow. And why should you notice this particularly, Mr. Fairchild? Well, naturally, I've read about the case in the papers. Who hasn't? You know this man's name, of course. I have his signature on an agreement. The name there is William Sperling. Unofficially assisting the police is John Mason, played by Spencer Teekle, who's inadvertently connected to the case in two ways. Firstly, his girlfriend June, played by Felicity Young, shared a dressing room with the killer's most recent victim, Gloria Stark, and John Mason was the last person to see her alive. Both June and Gloria were showgirls of the Casbah Theatre, a fictional version of the windmill. Secondly, Mason has recently and accidentally become the proprietor of WOW magazine, so the murders are right on his doorstep. Covergirl Killer was made cheaply, mostly at Walton Studios with a couple of exterior shots in Soho, by a company called Butchers, a distribution company who produced some B features in the 1950s. Director Terry Bishop and producer Jack Parsons had worked together before as recently as a few months earlier on a British Lion film with a title quite similar to Covergirl Killer, Model for Murder, a less sensationalist and slightly more sophisticated thriller. Luke Dixon is a theatre director and beekeeper and has lived in Soho for over 40 years. 
When I asked him if he'd like to come on the show to talk about a Soho film, he originally chose Emile and the Detectives from 1935, but I persuaded him to choose Cover Girl Killer instead because he has a strangely close connection to it. I met up with Luke in his flat between Dean Street and Wardour Street to drink his beer and to hear his thoughts. I began by asking him if he was pleased I persuaded him to watch and talk about Cover Girl Killer. Well, uh, please maybe isn't quite the word, Don, but it was nice to know that where I live and where we are sitting has got a little bit of um, movie history. Yeah, we should explain this, shouldn't we? So in the film, Harry H. Corbett takes... Spoiler alert. Christine is, watch, is planning to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we won't tell... We won't give too much away. It was fairly early on. It's only a very short film, isn't it? It's an hour, it's hour, an and, hour one and one minute. It's an hour and one minute. And that includes a minute of credits. But the, the very, very Soho element is that he takes one of his victims to a photographic studio, which in a certain building on St Anne's Court in Soho... And I'm sure the actual interior scenes are a studio, but the exterior is your where you live. It is exactly where I live. And they shoot St Anne's Court from two different directions. They do a reverse shot later on where Harry H. Corbett, as the man, uh, goes to visit a, a sort of shady um, theatrical agent who's got one cigar yeah. in, in his cigar box. <laughs> which he doesn't like. <laughs> exactly. And it is like the producers. I mean, there's, an e- there's a pre-echo of the producers there. Um, so St Anne's Court is used as two different locations, as, or as one location for two different places, um, with a, the camera at one end of St Anne's Court for the um, photographic studio, where presumably, back in the day, people would... Uh, go and photograph scantily clad models and take the photos home for their delectation. You get the impression from what they say in the film that that was a thing, the idea that you could hire a studio in Soho, you weren't disturbed, yeah, and you could take your pictures of whoever it was and, like you say, take them home for your own um, personal enjoyment. I'm lo- missing a trick here, actually. Yeah, I know. You could, you could rent out a kitchen or something, <laughs> couldn't you? Like or, this very kitchen we're yeah. sitting in. <laughs> The two camera angles, or the the same location from two different directions, this is one of the many, many symptoms of it being a very low-budget film. It's produced by Butchers, who um, they basically uh, specialise in these B-movies. So they're very short and very cheap. And we were saying before we started recording, I do feel that, although it's not a great film, I think we would both agree it's not a fantastic film, it seems feels like there's a better film trying to get out, and it feels like, feels like it's very compressed, and that it would benefit, weirdly, which is the converse of the way things normally are, it would benefit from being a bit longer. It's so short, and um, the tension does uh, ratchet up in it, I think. So even though, because, the, because of the premise of the movie, you do know pretty well at the beginning who the killer is... So it's not a, it's almost got a Hitchcockian trope in that you know who the killer is and partly you see it through his eyes and you sort of, you still think, is he going to do another, is he going to murder the blonde who you're rooting for? And you know, of course, intellectually that he's not, but somehow they do keep the, the tension going, I think. He isn't named in the credits, he's just called The Man. And he has various names. He's called Spendoza, in the, one of the characters that he plays. Yeah. And we see him as the pebble-spectacled Dirty Mac killer 
character. But he plays his other characters as well. He plays sort of posh chap who claims to be a landlord. So you never actually quite know who he is. You never see the real the real one. You, you know? don't, and it's it's to the credit of Harry H. Corbett, I think, that he pulls that off because all of these characters, even the murderer, where the Harry H. Corbett character adopts this terrible toupee and terrible glasses, almost as a way of um, sort of daring the police to find him. It's just like, you know, he, there's nothing subtle about his murderer disguise. Yeah. But, you, but I think Harry H. Corbett does sort of pull it off, really. I think he's great in this film. And he, he wouldn't have been particularly famous at this point. I mean, in film-wise, he, he had had his very, very illustrious career with... I always want to say Joan Greenwood, it's Joan Littlewood. Joan Littlewood in the theatre workshop. And then he went on, I think his theatre work carried on after the movie and he did, worked at Bristol Old Vic and he played the the leads. He actually played Macbeth and he played Richard II. And then, as inevitably happens, the phone, the agent phone went and said, we've got a TV series. I think it was a pilot originally, wasn't it? It was a one-off of something called Steptoe and Son. And the role of the son in Steptoe and Son, sort of was his albatross, really, till the end of his life. I mean, he'd, he'd never really escaped that role. It's albatross. <laughs> <laughs> albatross. Yeah, dirty old man. I think he's superb in it, actually. And, and I think there's a lot of very solid acting in it, a lot of stock character actors playing the policeman and the and the, the guy at the stage doorman and people like that who, you know, you would see in sort of almost every other movie and TV series made at the time. The policeman, Detective Inspector Brunner, <laughs> is played by Victor Brooks, who, you know, like you say, is one of these faces. I recognised him. He is obsessed throughout the film with coffee and his <laughs> pipe. He does coffee acting and pipe acting throughout yeah. the movie. yeah. It never stops. And actually, I thought, um, oh, this is a really weak thing. They're just constantly giving coffee to make. But then there's one moment where he's in the dressing room with June, played by Felicity Young. And um, she offers him some coffee. And he says, oh, yes, please. Can I make it? So it's obviously like a thing they've, they've put into his character. The guy is obsessed with coffee. But like because it is compressed, because it's like they've chopped out all the coffee references. Well, lots and lots of them. And there's not enough to make it a, a, a humorous trope. No, but but it be, but it's sort of essential to the plot because he has to be left aside alone in the dressing room while she goes off, and you see this sort of look in his eye where he's just dropped the idea to June that maybe she could pose in the next edition of Wow, which yeah. we haven't spoken about Wow yet. What is it called again? <laughs> Whizzle, Whizzle, Whiz, 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 Whiz. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so he he's, he tries to subtly persuade her to to volunteer to be the cover girl of the next issue of Wow, and the last three issues of Wow, all the cover girls have been murdered, and so they want to to be able to uh, put someone on the cover and then keep tabs on her, so and hence find the the murderer. It's a very clumsy trap. And yes, he, he may or may not fall for it. We can't tell that. <laughs> to the uh, the listener, but Wow is this magazine that I, I have at home a copy of a magazine from the same period called Gentleman's Relish or something like that. Or yeah, and there Gentleman's was something called Titbits. Titbits, yeah. Um, very very 
it, I mean, soft, uh, slightly saucy cartoons and adventure stories, and then yeah. girls in bikinis. Yeah. But, you know, for the real hardcore stuff, you had to get Health and Efficiency, which was the yeah. Naturist magazine, which I think still comes out. It was sort of, I suppose, top shellfish, but but I don't think there was any nudity in it, was there? In uh, those kind of magazines at the time? Not yeah. proper nudity, no. I mean, Harrison Marks, who have been talking about with David, he produced this magazine called Camera, with a K, that did have nudes in. But that was, that was a specialist publication. I think, wow... Wow magazine in this is more of a thing you could buy in a news agent, yeah. although it's kind of looked down upon. And it's the whole, um, th- this pornification of culture is what has driven Harry H. Corbett's character, the man, insane, because he's, he's insane with lust. And there's a line where he talks about it having taken away dignity. Why did you have to do these terrible things? Why? I suppose... It's because I am what Inspector Brunner says I am. He says you're a highly intelligent man. He also says I'm insane. If wanting to give man back his dignity, to free him from the prison of lustful images which foul his mind and his sanity, his madness, well, I suppose he's right. Man is enslaved to the feelings of lust that these magazines engender in uh, good, solid, red-blooded men. And it's, that's almost the way that Christian fundamentalists and, you know, other yeah. religious fundamentalists are. You know, women shouldn't wear revealing clothes because a man just cannot control his desire when he sees an ankle or a, a shapely calf, you know. And, of course, it, it, we should say you don't see any. You do see some shapely calves just about, but and ankles, but that is about it in the movie. Yeah. And the, the Dune character works in somewhere called the Casbah, which is sort of the windmill theatre, I suppose where she does, uh, along with the other girls, dances and tableau between the comics. And there's a, there's, they complain at one point that the comic's still on and they want to get on and do their dance yeah. at home. Um, so that brings us as an audience into this world of the Casbah. So we get a chance briefly, and often only from the back, to see these girls dancing. But, I mean, they're pretty well fully clad. We're supposed to imagine that it's this sort of filthy, uh, <laughs> low-brow place. It's a lot of sort of bathing beauties at Butlin's sort of feel yeah. about it. It's kind of, it's but there's, really but there's some talk in, the, in this movie about how the girls have got very high moral standards. There's this horrible logic about the whole thing. Three deaths, all of them cover girls, and they died in the same order in which they appeared on the cover of our magazine. Well, if the Swiss do confirm the identity of this last girl, it means we're up against the worst kind of killer. What do you mean? The psychopathic killer. A man with a grudge against your type of cover girl woman, and all she represents. From my experience, from what little I've seen of them, I'd say their morals are as good as anyone's. I said all she represents, the commercial exploitation of sex, something a little more subtle than the commoner garden prostitute. The proprietor of WOW is this chap called uh, John Mason, who's always referred to as Young Mason by the police. It's, it's Young Mason on the phone. <laughs> And I quite liked him. I quite liked his performance. I did. It's um, Spencer Teacle, I think his name is, the actor. He was born in Australia and died in America and in between made this one movie, as far as I can see. And he um, 
there's a really bizarre scene where the policeman come round to his house and he's there sort of half naked, in fact more naked than any of the girls in the movie, yeah. with a shirt strangely tucked into his top pocket and vast expanses of hairy upper body. And he just sort of makes no attempt to cover any of this up to the police when they come in. It's almost like there's a bit of gratuitous male nudity in the film as well. Yeah. Uh, very, very bizarre. Yeah. He reminded me a little bit of um, Roddy McDowell. Yes. His manner is slightly kind of um, slightly nerdy. The premise is that he is actually an archaeologist and he has inherited this magazine from his uncle, his eccentric uncle, and he wants to take it... A, bit more upmarket so he's doing he's doing a story about the lives of showgirls apart from the fact that standard trope of the the police just inviting in a member of the public to help them their inquiries and he says things like you distract him while I do this as if police would do that you know um I liked him I found him quite engaging I also liked um Felicity Young as June I thought she was quite classy and I'm surprised when I did a bit of digging I couldn't find anything about either of them. In fact, Felicity Young turns up in a, on a website called something like ForgottenActors.com, which I, I thought was a bit sad because I thought she had, she did have a bit of something about her, you know. Mm. The other person I couldn't find anything about was Terry Bishop, the director. He went on to do quite a lot of telly, things like Danger Man and um, Sir Lancelot and those kind of series from the 60s. But the assistant director... The assistant you director, I did notice, about, yeah. was Peter Yates. And he went on, he did some work on Danger Man uh, almost immediately after this. And uh, The Saint, uh, which all used to be filmed around where I lived in, where I went to school out in Barnet and near Tail Street Studios. And you'd always... You know, you'd bunk off on a Wednesday afternoon and there'd be some car chase for the same happening around the corner. Wow. Anyway, but Peter Yates, he did, he did, after this, he became a full time, full director. He did The Saint, he did some Danger Man. And then, as if by magic, he went to Hollywood and directed Bullet. And there, <laughs> and there doesn't seem to be anything in between. That's amazing. Quite astonishing. Because, you know, for car chases, Bullet... Yeah, is, that is the car that chase is the, film. That is the movie. So you could watch Bullet and say, I know where he practised his art. <laughs> it's all around Barnet. Yeah, and I have not... I can't really find much about anybody else. But I suppose these were just churned out every week, virtually. Yeah, yeah Butchers, they started out in early in the silent era as a sort of film services company. And then they went into producing... And by this stage, they were they were at the producing stage, and then became a distributor basically. So they went from producing B movie fodder to distributing crappy sort of sex film, sex comedies, and that kind of thing. And I guess they were made just to be shown once, yeah, or for the week, yeah, and then that, they'd they'd be gone. The idea that Coverville Killer would be a, <laughs> a part of the BFI repertoire it strikes me just how far away from Hollywood it was. We talked about Peter Yates going from here to Hollywood. The, the difference between those worlds is extraordinary. And you look at the films that were being made in Hollywood at the same time, which in that year Ben-Hur came out, North by Northwest, Some Like It Hot, and then we had Covergirl Killer and yeah. uh, Carry On Nurse, though. Let's, you know, it wasn't all bad. We had Expresso Bongo that year. We did. Not we a did. bad film. No, that's true. I think it was a terrible ta- stage show, apparently, but a, a much better movie. But the, but that, along with Espresso Bongo, so you've got these two Soho cultures 
side by side. You've got this, the, the sex culture exemplified by the windmill or the casbah in this movie. And then you've got the coffee bar culture and rock and skiffle and pop coming up at the same time, haven't you? So yeah. There's, um, they sort of rub, rub along against each other. And actually, Espresso Bongo, there's, a, there's scenes in that set in a strip club or a... I don't know. I mean, they don't strip. They're already semi-clad when they come on. But And they're much more explicit. I mean, much, much more explicit. There, there are girls in there who've just got kind of nipple coverers on. But they get away with it because it's Espresso Bongo and it's Cliff and it's... It's lighter and, you know, it's a bit of a satire. Yeah. I think probably they knew what they could get away with in this film because it was an ex-certificate and it's not as sordid as, as it thinks it is or, it's, or it, sold, it sells itself as, mm. you know. There's a lovely line, uh, which Dermot Kelly, I see it is, who plays the stage doorkeeper, and he was in a lot of TV comedies at the time. There, were, um, there was a series I can vaguely remember as a child called Bootsy and Snudge. And he was in that, which was sort of like the English version of Sergeant Bilko. And he, he's on the stage door and, and, and someone says something like, I didn't know you read this, Pop. That's not for people who can read. Don't you like it? What? At my age, look, son. And he says, I like oh, Brazil nuts. nuts but I've got, got false teeth. teeth. <laughs> and they're, they're going back to what you were saying earlier, there were little glimpses every so often in the movie. You think this could have been so much better a movie. Presumably someone had written it on a Sunday night and it had gone into production on the Monday and... It just doesn't have a chance to breathe. There are interesting characters that we meet, like Roger Lloyd Pack's father, mm. uh, who plays this disabled, war-wounded major whose daughter is one of the victims. And he is it's quite a nice little scene, and he's, uh, he's talking about his daughter gone to London. He knows it's a bit saucy. He kind of seeks reassurance at one point. He says, there's nothing wrong with it, is there? And he says, no, 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 no. But then he inexplicably then takes umbrage at young Mason. And I can't figure out, I've watched it two or three times, I've rewound it, watched it two or three times. I can't quite figure out what it is, where he flips. It's almost like there's a there's something on the cutting room floor that yeah. made him flip. Yeah. And there are moments, there are sort of time-saving moments where it feels like it's done because, and it does work stylistically, like she, the first victim that we see, she says, oh, 10 o'clock in the morning, oh, I should be dead meaning I'll be, that'd be absolutely exhausting. And then it cuts directly to her dead. But there are moments where it just feels like that, that the reverse of that happens. We kind of think, what, what happened? What was supposed to happen between there and there? What did happen, you know? And there's a, there's a scene with the husband of one of the dead models and, and he's sort of interrogated and he's, she's abandoned him and gone off to Switzerland with, a version of the man, Mr. Spendoza character. Uh, it's got that sort of kitchen sink feel about it, that scene, with yeah. some really sort of heartfelt acting by this guy who's been abandoned by his girlfriend. Um, he tries to play wife. it down, doesn't he? Yeah, and he sort of, he, and he's, he oh, I'll, I'll get, if she's dead, it'll save him money in the divorce. Yeah. It's stylistically sort of all over the place, really. But then when they leave, he has a little breakdown. He's yeah. obviously devastated by the p- potential death of his wife. And that little, there's little moments that I think that's much more. There's a more interesting film in it. Bruno does all this coffee acting and um, and pipe acting. You know, it's that period when those sort of characters always had a pipe, 
And if it's if he's not got the pipe in his mouth, he's patting down his coffee and making this, you know, espresso coffee or whatever he is. He's, he's like a fanatic. The way he wields his pipe is really good. He kind of um, he uses it to think with and gesticulate with. And even when they've just arrested a person they think is the killer, he doesn't, you know, tell his men to do things or just or take control of the scene. He takes his pipe to pieces and starts kind of like <laughs> blowing down it and seeing if he can But it's clear. sort of old-fashioned... Uh, weekly rep acting, you know, where the, the actor of that age who will play the version of that character every week in rep, you know, would do that sort of real upstate, upstaging acting with yeah. his pipe and draw the scene to him. And there's another actor who plays the doctor when they find the first body who looked very familiar. I'm sure he was in Quatermass or something like that. Again, it's one of these you think, God, I've seen that face a million times in yeah. black and white movies. There's a gag at the end of that scene, isn't there? There's a little joke where he says, because um, they've discovered the, the bikini-clad body by the serpentine, and the uh, chief inspector, police inspector says to the doctor, if you were coming down to commit suicide by the serpentine, <laughs> would you wear a bikini? <laughs> and it has got lots of those droll little lines yeah. like that. I wondered, watching it, where the theatre scenes were filmed, whether they were filmed on location in a real theatre or whether it was all studio work. Because I, I just thought that the stage door stuff and actually on the stage, and particularly at the end, I don't want to give too much away, but when they're chasing the man up into the flies of the theatre. Yeah. I mean, it could have been that that was just at Walton Studios. That could be a, yeah, that could but, be a, a soundstage, couldn't it? Yeah. It's nearly all internal, isn't it, apart from St Anne's Court and the Serpentine. And St Anne's Court, just in case any of your listeners are interested, also turns up in the Marianne Faithful's autobiography. She lived for a while, dosed down on St Anne's Court, slept roughly right. on St Anne's Court. So, um, When yeah, was this? This, is... this was, I don't know, back in the 60s, I suppose, so maybe not too long after the movie was made. So before she became... Before she... Before, before she Mars Bars entered... <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly <laughs> Mars Bars. Before other confectionery is available. Yeah. But before yeah. confectionery entered her life. Right. Um, my, my apologies for Luke's smutty, smutty Mars Bar reference there. And he seemed like such a nice chap too. As a man of the theatre, Luke's working life has been severely impacted by the current crisis. But undaunted... He has been organising a series of guerrilla theatre performances in public, open-air, COVID-safe spaces all over London. Most recently, they performed Much Ado About Nothing in Hyde Park, and coming soon are some revolutionary speeches in Red Lion Square. Luke also featured as a guest on this podcast spin-off series, Mural Morsels, talking about 19th-century actress Fanny Kelly, and once the world returns to normal, the show he directed about her will be hitting the road once more. You can find details about all of this, plus a link to his Instagram on the show notes. You know the address. It's SohoBitesPodcast.com. And my thanks again to David McGillivray. We'll be coming back on the show at some point to discuss a Soho film of his choice. Hopefully, I'll be able to steer him away from filth next time. As ever, you can tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at BitesSoho or email us at SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom Delaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. 
Until next time, go to work, don't go to work. Go to restaurants, don't go to restaurants. Stay indoors, but go outside. Stay safe, and I'll be back next month. Bye for now. Thank you.